Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour with me, Harriet Minter. This week, we have three amazing badass women sharing their research, campaigns, and life stories. Becca Hudson talks to us about how the treatment of sexual assault victims has to change. Gabby Edlin explains how women are being financially penalized for trying to bring sustainability to period products. And Krista Paravani shares her lived experience with a lack of access to abortion rights in the US. First up, I discuss a new report critiquing the treatment of sexual assault victims by the police with Becca Hudson. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. So we're starting with a report that came out uh, at the beginning of this week around the how women are being, in quotes, completely let down by rape investigations. This comes following the research earlier this year, which showed that convictions for rape in England and Wales are at an all-time low, half of what they were three years ago. Uh, and it's put together by organisations such as Rape Crisis and Centre for Women's Justice and End Violence Against Women. And it says essentially there are massive problems in how the police investigate and prosecute rape. Uh, so here to talk to me about it now, I have criminal investigation researcher Becca Hudson. Hi, Becca. Hi. Thanks so much for joining me. So tell us, what do you think are some of the key problems with the way the police investigate rape allegations? Well, I think, I mean, the report is very damning in its kind of, you know, they talk about catastrophic failures within the system. But as you say, it is also a long-standing problem. So yes, prosecutions are half of what they were three years ago, but even three years ago, they were not great. And actually, for most of my adult life, the kind of uh, rape prosecution rate has hovered from kind of 6%, 5%, 3%. So it's a long standing issue. And some of those things are legal in terms of the kind of evidence which is required to prove that coercion or sexual violence has happened, which oftentimes is very difficult to provide. But also, the system itself is incredibly damaging for victims of rape of, of any gender, because it's possible for you to kind of have your sexual history drawn out in court and thrown mm. back in your face as a reason for your story about what has happened to not be trusted. And we've seen kind of scandals around specific police practices over the years. Um, so things like police requiring women to give over their phones and have all of their phone da data downloaded in a rape or domestic violence case and for that to be scrutinised and picked over. And of course, the defence then has access to that data and can use it to 
say, well, it looks like she's lying or pick, a, um, pick apart your sexual history. So some of these things, um, there's definitely interventions that could be made. But we also often hear about a culture in the police more widely where women are just not believed. They're scrutinised, they're seen as suspicious. And there's been over 100 cases in recent years of women themselves being imprisoned uh, because their stories are not seen as reliable. So they are then prosecuted um, for wasting police time um, and perjury and kind of perversion of justice as well. I think a lot of people will be, well, not a lot of people, but some people will be listening to this and thinking, well, yeah, but, you know, some people lie about rape and if you have lied about it, you should be prosecuted for that under perjury laws. What are actually the, what do we know about the numbers around that? How reliable is it? Well, we know from almost all research, and this is not just in the UK, kind of globally, um, that the proportion of people who come forward and lie about experiences of sexual violence is um, negligibly low. I mean, it's kind of below sort of 3% of all sexual violence that is reported. Um, and some of the cases... Uh, which you can read about of people who have themselves been imprisoned. Um, some of those women upon leaving prison have then continued to be stalked and um, attacked by the men that they originally went to report. Mm. Um, and we know that, I mean, the incentives for lying about an experience of sexual violence are really not there, particularly in the way that the justice system currently deals with these issues. Um, it's often re-traumatising for people. You are scrutinised. You have to give over a huge amount um, of kind of data about yourself and in order to prove anything. Uh, and we know that actually the vast majority of people that experience sexual violence um, and domestic abuse in this country don't go to the police at all. It's not actually uh, people's first port of call in these situations. And I think, you know, we have to remember that all of this around the criminal justice system is happening in a context where other forms of support for people experiencing sexual violence of abuse and abuse have been eroded over many years so that now actually there are huge numbers of women being turned away from refuges and other forms of support so what kind of a landscape are we sort of as a society providing for people who experience this kind of violence if the justice system is not something that people go to and it can be very hostile and there are these kind of litany of failures and the support system has been so cut back that it's really threadbare I mean what are people to do and again you know on the the kind of uh, dishonesty question, what incentive is there to go through this uh, if you're being dishonest? I guess this brings me to the next question, which is how much of this is about police handling and how much of this is about how we as a society still see women? Because, you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, it's not the police that say whether somebody is guilty or not, it's the jury. And if you've got a jury of 12 people there and nine of them believe in the concept of well if uh, you went out in a short skirt you were asking for it or if you sent him a flirty text message before uh, the date then you are clearly up for it you know, how how much of it is the way it's handled by police and how much of it is down to societal attitudes towards women well, I think there's absolutely wider societal issues about mm. the way in which um, women are viewed and treated and also you know the priority of providing those forms of support to women, giving women financial autonomy so that they're able to leave frightening situations. I mean, 
all of this stuff, if we really lived in a society that kind of supported everybody equally, we would see those kind of services and resources being provided to people who are experiencing violence without question. And we don't see that. I think there's a huge societal issue there. But on this report in particular, they are talking about failures within the criminal justice system. Um, And so when you're talking about prosecution uh, rates, Mm. this is before any of these cases even get into a courtroom. Um, That people are dissuaded, that no further action is taken, that their experience of bringing the case and reporting it to the police is so hostile that they are discouraged from taking it any further, that they're re-traumatised by the process. And all of this is before we even get a prosecution, right, let alone even a conviction. I mean, when you're talking about what a jury might decide. Um, So this, I think, particularly the content of this report is looking at that step-by-step process of what happens when somebody goes to make a report to the police uh, in the hope that they're going to get safety, protection from the person that's attacked them and justice in form of charging uh, and prosecuting that person. Um, So this is looking at those kind of failures before we're even getting into a courtroom. But there are definitely wider societal issues. And I think, frankly, you know, This has been an issue which has been going on for such a long time. These rates have been poor for so long that we do need as a society to have a wider conversation about, well, what does the support system look like and what bold action can be taken that actually looks at what survivors of rape and abuse uh, want and need in order to feel safe and supported and think about what institutions can provide that. Because at the moment, this failure is is so long-standing and institutional that it just doesn't seem to be going away. So what should we be, how should we be supporting victims and what should the police be doing within themselves to change this systemic, it seems like, failure to actually support women? Well, I think there has to be um, a transformation of the culture across police in particular because you're often seeing as I said uh, women scrutinize and this is particularly acute for women who have unstable immigration status for example who are more likely to have themselves referred to the home office and actually have um, a form of violence that they've experienced be investigated so I think the kind of scrutiny um, and, and disbelieving of women that happens within police when people are first reporting absolutely needs to be looked at. But that said, we have had, when this problem has persisted in the past, training has been given um, and there's been restructuring of kind of, ha- of of departments within the police that deal with rape and abuse. And they haven't seemed to make a real dent on the problem. So I would argue, frankly, that we need to look at the problem in a much broader way and think about the kinds of support that are being given to people. I mean, you know, People's experiences and their their kind of what they need after they've experienced violence vary hugely. Uh, But a lot of people really are looking um, to be safe, to be listened to, to be heard. And so I think, you know, if somebody is reporting, there should be an immediate signposting to well-resourced services in terms of somewhere safe where they can go. Mental health support that is free, that is long term and that is appropriate for whoever it is that is presenting themselves in terms of what their experience has been. Um, And there needs to be support systems where care for people who have experienced violence is the first port of call. And then if they're able to be supported through going through the justice process, um, then they are supported to do that. And that the disbelief and kind of scrutiny around it really needs to be questioned as to why this is happening, Um, as well as 
as I mentioned before, some of those legal things. So admitting a woman's sexual history in court, for example, is something which I think, you know, can be got rid of actually tomorrow. I mean, I think um, it's it's so interesting because you know, really what your sexual history has to do with um, a, a rape allegation is even, I mean, let's just assume the absolute worst case scenario here that somebody is making it up. Unless you have a history of making it up and that is shown by your text messages, what is anyone going to learn from a woman's sexual history? Absolutely nothing. It uh, astonishes me that in this day and age we still think that is a place to start when questioning women completely and that i mean i will say that that the practice of downloading data uh, from women's phones Mm. that was then being submitted as part of these cases um was challenged and was and was found to to be unlawful previously so you know it, it really is it's something which um is beyond the bounds of of what was understood to be acceptable but that was a very commonplace practice at the time i mean this is only about a year or two ago do you think that reports like this while they are needed i wonder if perhaps they put women off then reporting rape because actually it feels like the odds are so stacked against you what's the point i would agree and i think that you know these kind of whether it's horror stories or news headlines, reports like this. Um, and it's interesting, the report themselves talk about kind of government inquiries and reviews being used again and again, essentially as a means of kicking the can down the road and not taking bold and systemic action where it's required. Um, and I do think that it could be discouraging, but so can, you know, hearing a friend or colleague or someone, you know, a loved one in your life talking about what their experience has been through going through the justice system. And again, I think that's why the priority needs to be on providing, um, you know, well-resourced and no-strings care um, to women who are presenting themselves uh, as having gone through an experience of sexual violence. Because if that is your first experience when you go to any form of authority about violence or abuse that you faced, um, you're going to feel supported. And whether you choose to go forward with the justice process or not, uh, you will have found that actually when I spoke out about it, I was met with real, meaningful, well-resourced support as opposed to disbelief, scrutiny, my data being downloaded and then having to go through a re-traumatising process in court if it even got that far. Becca, thank you so much for joining me to talk about this. Becca Hudson there, um, researcher into criminal practice and talking really about how we ask the police to properly think about how they treat people alleging sexual assault. Yeah, I mean, I want to say how they treat people who are victims of sexual assault because, as Becca said, the numbers of people that get to the point where they're reporting it and they are lying about it is so small. Honestly, it is so small that we actually need to start believing the women when they show up and tell us this because I don't know about you but every single woman I know knows some woman who has been through a form of sexual violence and lots of them have experienced it themselves it is far wider than we give it credit for um, and if there is one thing we can do in the 20s of 2020 is maybe think about how we treat it as an actual as the actual epidemic that it is Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. You can get in touch on all the socials on at Badass Women's Hour. Now, let's get back to our guest. Now, if you paid attention to this show, which I know you did a few years ago, you would have been with us when we celebrated the fact that tampons and sanitary products were no longer subject to the 20% VAT rule that actually the government realised they weren't luxury items. They were quite essential for most women. And so it seemed as though the VAT on sanitary products had gone. Well, sort of. I mean, it went down to 5%. and You know, sometimes a win is a win. But that's not the case. It's not the case. And here to tell us why it's not the case is campaigner Gabby Edlin. Hi, Gabby. Hi, hi. How are you? Good. Thank you. So I thought that we had dealt with this issue and the pink tax was gone and the government understood that this stuff was completely essential and not a luxury item like, say, champagne or truffles. Um and yet that's not true, is it? It's not. And, and to be perfectly honest, I also had thought that we had done and dusted this. I <laughs> thought it was, I thought the tax was gone. Um, but this is the way that the government works, isn't it? Some things just aren't made completely clear. And the reason that I've come on to chat tonight is because we're working with the period pant company, Modi Body, because mm. they have a campaign to get the 20% tax off reusable period products, um, which is still very much in existence, even though the disposables are not. So this is really interesting because actually reusable period products are a very new category, really, isn't it? Well, pants are, yes. Yeah. So some people might have heard of like period knickers, um, you know, you sort of use them instead of a disposable pad. But then we've got like menstrual cups, which were invented in the 40s, I think, mm. you know, have been around for a very long time. And then, of course, people have been using reusable pads since they started having periods basically in different forms but yeah the engineering sort of design on the period knickers is quite new um only in really the last decade but they I think pretty popular with people and a really great way to have an environmentally friendly period I mean this is the big thing isn't it because actually what we don't talk about enough we talk about the fact that you know tampon sanitary pads essential we can't really do without them but most of them Mm -hmm. very very environmentally unfriendly well, exactly. And I think the big companies have had, you know, um, a sort of 
because there wasn't really any alternatives that were mm. obvious at the time. They were just able to make them with whatever they wanted. And that included, I mean, one pad has the equivalent of something like six plastic bags or something ridiculous like that. And, you know, while I very much don't think that the impetus of the environment should be put all on women and people who menstruate, I think, you know, I think there's a lot of women and people who menstruate who would like to have an environmentally free period and would like to have the choice to do that and not have to use disposable products all the time. I mean, so what in terms of like, what can we do about this? And not only can we get it down to 5%, actually, should we still even be paying that 5%? Oh, yeah, no. <laughs> we should, no, <laughs> we should not. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they are still classed in the same bracket as I think it is crocodile meat um, mm. and truffles, as you said, and all these luxurious things that, that are not really a central part of our lives. So Modibody Body have created this campaign, which is called This Taxes Pants. You just need to search for that. We love our puns in the period world. Um, and you can sign that. And basically, Modibody Body have said that when that 20% tax comes off, which they believe it will, and I agree, they'll make their pants 20% cheaper, which is basically a win-win for everybody. This is, I mean, this is in itself quite an interesting issue, right, which is that we say there is... Um, you know, we need to take that 20% off that it's not it's not a luxury item, definitely not. Uh, so we won't be paying luxury VAT on it. But actually, is there something to be said here around why are women paying for their sanitary products at all? Uh, yeah, I mean, at Bloody Good Period, so the, the charity that, that, that I run, we believe that products should be free. So in the same way that you can go to any... Um, chemist and buy your condoms for example yeah. you can still get condoms free mm-hmm. and birth control free from any doctor surgery sexual health clinic so it basically means that everybody in the country has access to condoms and we believe that a similar model should be adapted for the rest of the UK Scotland have just mm-hmm. made fee provision for everybody who needs it and we think the same thing should be here um, so we're campaigning with that as well. We we have a campaign on change.org, which is change.org forward slash bloody free. Because we believe that, you know, why should we be having to pay for this? Why should people who are in poverty, especially, be having to choose between, you know, a meal for their kids, a nappy for their baby and a period product? It's mm-hmm. like you say, it's essential. There is nothing luxurious about having a period. Believe, you know, believe me, believe you. <laughs> I'm sure anyone who's ever menstruated will agree. Um, what does the research tell us about women's attitudes towards this? Because I know you really care about it. I really care about it. But I'm wondering, actually, in the kind of the wider scheme of things, do women really care about it? Or have we just got so used to it that, you know, we just shrug it off now? I think I think it's a bit of both. I think part of part of the country, I guess, is just like hasn't even thought of the fact of the unfairness of it all. And I think that's like completely fair. And it's just up to the rest of us to sort of help people understand that this isn't the way it should be just because the way it is. But I think definitely, you know, the sort of menstrual activist um, sort of stream of feminism is growing. <laughs> you know, we're not, it's not I really just like that... this idea of a menstrual activist. It's like putting all that hormonal rage to really good use. I know, use. right? I know, I'm angry and I will use it in my work. Um, but yeah, I think that it's something, look, you know, periods is not all that women are. And I think mm-hmm. that's what sometimes people get confused about because that's all I talk about. I don't think it's the central <laughs> fact of being a woman at all. 
But I think it's a really big part of something that has led to so much inequality. It's led to so much stigma. And actually, it can be changed really easily with just a few sort of changes, really, from business, government, our workplaces, schools, that kind of thing. What are some of the changes you'd like to see in schools, actually? Because I was thinking you said they're about, you know, it's it's something that's part of our lives and yet it still has so much stigma. And I really think a lot of that stigma starts in school and how yeah, we no, talk yeah. to and teach children about female bodies. I think you're absolutely right because we take the boys out, don't we? You know, when you when we have our sort of talk, which I had when I was 14, which for some reason, you know, is ridiculous. That's far too late. But the boys are taken out of the classroom. And so... That's like the first thing I think boys need to learn about periods, um, first of all, so that if Mm -hmm. you become a dad, if you're a partner of of a woman or someone who menstruates, you know about this stuff. And I also think just, um, well, their products are free in schools now, which is really exciting. And that's been the amazing work of the free periods campaign. So if anyone's listening who's a teacher or has children at school, make sure your school signed up for this scheme because otherwise it could basically get cut, which we really, really don't want. Mm. Um, But yeah, there needs to just be so much more discussion early on. I think there's always like a lot of fear that talking about periods means you're talking about sex. But it's not. It's talking about your body. It's, you know, I was a nanny for years and the little children that I looked after, they knew what I did. So they wanted to know what is a period. And basically you tell them and that's fine because it's they're learning at the same time as learning what their elbow is, learning what their bum is, you know, learning what their toes do. And it just becomes like (laughs) completely normal to them, which I think is is really important to do, not only in the family home, but also in schools, just to completely normalise periods, like for everybody, whether you're going to menstruate or not when you're older. How would you like to see the government change their attitude to women, women's health, women's periods? going forward what would be some kind of what would be some steps that they could take that m- might mean that actually we don't have to remind them of every single thing that, <laughs> no, that happens to us it does feel like that doesn't it it's it's excruciating mm. sometimes because you just think everything is centered around the cis male basically yeah. and everything has to become like an issue that we have to raise. I think the first thing, obviously, from our part would be free period products. We want to see that the government realise that this is an essential part of life. This is something that many women and people who menstruate are not able to access. I think that would be the first. And I think the other thing would be, I I think we need more women at the top. I'm not just Mm. talking about one prime minister every 50 years or whatever. You know, I'm talking about women in charge of the budget. I'm talking about women in charge of you know the country Mm -hmm. women in charge you know and sort of women who are are happy to talk about this stuff it's like it's very much a it it should it shouldn't and can continue to be a private subject but it shouldn't be a secret and I think that's what we're contending with as as women like in public basically women who are now allowed to work now allowed to study or you know which is Mm -hmm. different from a hundred years ago and we need a workplace and we need a society that doesn't make us compact ourselves into people who don't menstruate Mm. rather we need a society that allows us to just be who we are and still succeed and still excel and thrive I think that's very well put very good point um can you tell us finally about the give a pair program yeah so this is some brilliant stuff that Modi Body are doing so I'm always delighted to talk about it we're basically we're recipients of their give a pair program 
And I think it's, I think, I'm not sure the exact numbers, actually. I would have to come back to you on that. But basically, they have given us a whole load of brand new period pants. I love that you don't know the numbers, but just know there's loads of them. There there are tons. There are hundreds (laughs) of pairs. There are hundreds of pairs that they've given us, basically, which means that people who are living in poverty, asylum seekers and refugees, Mm -hmm. they also get to try this amazing product which could, you know, completely actually, a lot of people who use reusables say it revolutionizes their period. Um, and so we have in our take what you need store in our bloody good period sort of storage where anyone can go and access period products at all can go in and they can help themselves to pairs of period pants, which I think is hugely exciting because they are quite an expensive item. And they're something that would be completely inaccessible, not only to the people themselves, but to us as a charity to be able to buy. So the fact that Modi Body have um, brought us in on this give a pair scheme is fab for us and the people that we work with. Um, I think it's great from them and also from you, Gary. Thank you so much for coming in and talking to us. If anyone wants to uh, support the pink tax eradication, how can they do it? So they just need to head to thistaxespants.org. Um, and sign that petition and then to support the work that we do it's bloodygoodperiod.com brilliant thank you so much gabby edlin there activist founder of bloody good period just general all-round badass woman talking about why it is that just when you think you've solved a problem you haven't uh, particularly when it comes to women and their bodies this is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. You can get in touch on all the socials on at Badass Women's Hour. Our next guest has written a book about a time in her life that not a lot of women talk about, and I think it's really important they do. We are going to be talking about abortion in the next section with the amazing Krista Paravni. In 2017, when she was living in West Virginia, Krista requested an abortion. Um, she'd come from California, been brought up in New York. She thought it would be straightforward. It wasn't. And her story is absolutely incredible. She joins us now to talk about it. Hi, Krista. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you. Tell us, a li- Take us back to 2017 and tell us what happened. Well, I, I'm from New York, as you said, and I grew up in New York. And my family, my husband and I and our daughter had been living in Los Angeles. And we found ourselves sort of at the end of the road in Los Angeles because we uh, didn't have stable employment. So I um, applied for a job teaching at the University of West Virginia. And we moved from Los Angeles to Morgantown, West Virginia. And um I was teaching creative writing there, and um, I had my daughter, Josephine, and um, not too long after we arrived in West Virginia, I had a second daughter, Iris, and um, quite by surprise, um, there are five years between my daughters, um, I found myself pregnant less than a year after my daughter was born, and um, adding a third child to the family was not something that we'd anticipated doing, and nor could we afford it. It was a really really brutally stressful time for us, you know, trying to figure out how to make ends meet with, with three children is incredibly difficult. Um, so I looked into my reproductive health care options. I asked my um, OBGYN um, for help uh, getting an abortion um, early on in that third pregnancy. And I was told that he did not know how to help me. And I thought, what? How is that possible? This is a woman's legal yeah. right. 
Um, but that's what he told me. And I went home in disbelief um, and looked at my options and realized that the nearest clinic was many hours away from my house. And um, that began my journey in uh, reproductive health care denial in the United States of America. To me, listening to this here in the UK, where you know, I can walk into my GP and request an abortion and it is a relatively, I say, it's not a, it's not an easy process, but there is a clear structure to the process. What went through your mind when you realised that that was, it was potentially not an option? I had always been, you know, in my life as a woman raised in a blue state here um, and having spent most of my time in a state that has some restrictions, but not, not as many as the state of West Virginia, I was, you know, probably like you would have been, I was in utter disbelief that something like that could happen, that a doctor could tell me that uh, basically that they could not help me um, figure out how to end a pregnancy. And then that was amplified, you know, tenfold when I I contacted another doctor at the suggestion of my friend who told me that she could, in our town, prescribe me RU486 to terminate the pregnancy. And that would have been easier because it wouldn't have required my, you know, travel across the state, but that I couldn't tell anybody that um, she was prescribing because people at her work would disagree with it. And she had been punished in the past, even though she had prescribing rights. Um, Her job was on the line, if I told. Um, It was utterly baffling to me terrifying and um uh it was it was earth it was earth shattering to me in the way that it really undermined my sense of confidence and and agency over my my own body and that you know those those you know those consequences ricocheted throughout my the rest of my life so tell us what happened well um what happened was i you know i um I looked into, I, I decided to decline the doctor's off, offer to prescribe RU486 because it didn't mm-hmm. seem altogether safe to me to yeah. be under the care of a doctor who couldn't, um, you know, talk about my care if there was an yeah. emergency. Um, so I, I decided not to do that. And um, there really were very few options. And I, you know, I carried my son to term um, and I gave birth to him and on a beautiful June day in Morgantown, West Virginia. And um, he was born with um, some serious complications. He had um, a significant issue with latch. His tongue and lip were tied. And I didn't know it at the time, but his collarbone was broken. It was injured during birth. Um, He was unable to eat. And he was also um, in pain. That was quite obvious. and had severe jaundice. But the thing is uh, that none of those things went um, diagnosed for him. Mm. He, you know, he was brought into a medical care facility that could not provide for him. And they asked me to leave the hospital early with Keats because there was no room in the hospital to treat us. The beds were full. Um, And uh, you know, that began the second part of my, you know, of my journey as a mother in a state that curtails reproductive freedom, which is the mother of a child uh, who cannot receive adequate health care. Mm. And um, that's where the book goes. And, you know, that was the catalyst for writing this book, really. Um, you know, 
people people ask me all the time, how could you write a book about wanting to uh, have an abortion and you have a, a son that you love? And, you know, my answer to that is just that my son needs to live in a world where in a country where he has adequate access to medical care yeah. and when you curtail access to reproductive health care. You also uh, cut funding for children's health care. And, you know, this is a book about reproductive health care that was written with my children in mind, um, yeah. you know, as their advocate and as an activist in this country, I had to say something about what I realized was a very clear correlation. And it's very, it's very uh, firmly documented in the research. And it's not, it's something that we're not really talking about. Just to go back a bit, can I ask you that moment when you decided, okay, I can't, I'm not going to be able to access an abortion, I am going to have this child what emotions were you going through at that point because how did you I guess just flip your mind to I have decided I don't want to have this pregnancy to well this pregnancy is happening you know the thing that I didn't know then and this will this will I'll answer the question but I didn't I didn't know this then is that the majority of women who are seeking to terminate a pregnancy in the United States and do so are women who are already mothers um yeah the majority of women um, seeking that care are already mothers because they're doing it because they need to provide for the children that they already have. And it was a decision that I needed to make in order to, pro to provide for the daughters that I had. I was making not enough money to bring a third child into our family. It wasn't that I didn't want yeah. my son. You know, it didn't, I wanted to be able to provide for my son and I couldn't, I didn't have the resources to do that. So of course, you know, the decision in my case to terminate a pregnancy was not without its own difficulties as well. Yeah. And um, when I realized that it was not going to be possible for me to terminate the pregnancy, I, you know, I tried my best to embrace a life where I tried to figure out what the finances would be. And I um, went forward uh, with my pregnancy, with my son, with love, knowing that I would bring him into a home where he was loved and cared for. And, you know, that we, that I'd found myself in this situation with him and there was, you know, the, the way out of it was to have him. Um, I've since learned, of course, you know, we, we make a lot of assumptions about motherhood. You know, one of them is that a woman chooses to have the, the number of children that she does. And yeah. I learned that's not the case. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? and, and I, that did not mean that because it wasn't my choice that I wasn't going to rally around him and make him, you know, a central part of our family, which, you know, which I did. And, I want to talk to you in a minute about kind of what you've learned about motherhood and about access to reproductive rights through this. But I just, I want to ask now, like, how do you feel about writing this story that at some point your son is probably going to grow up and read, um, which talks about the fact that there was a point where you thought about having an abortion while you were pregnant with him? Mm-hmm. Well, something that I've, and I, and I write, I wrote about this in the beginning of the book. Um, I was raised, uh, in a family where my mother had told me that she had had an appointment to have an abortion when she was pregnant with me. And, um, I lived with that story through my whole life. And I, I have to be honest with you. It didn't mean a lot to me. It never, it yeah. never hurt me. And I, I just thought that was between my mom and, and, you know, my mom, <laughs> that was, 
that was something that she needed to go through. And she decided to tell me, and you know, and I'm really glad that she did decide to tell me because I don't think I would have written this book had I not grown up with that because the taboo, you know, the book announces itself on a taboo. I wanted to have an abortion and I couldn't have one. And many, many women would not be able to be, to get over that in terms of just thinking about the guilt in, in introducing that story into the world. Mm-hmm. And of course I have that. I had that. Um, but on the other hand, I thought, okay, now as a writer, I've, I've published uh, another book um, mm-hmm. before this. Um, as a writer, I had an op- I had uh, a duty to use the tools that I have available to me, which is which are storytelling, to bring to the world, you know, the issue of women being denied their right to choose. And I don't see a lot of women writing about that. And I just, I felt that in order to fulfill the role that I, that I want to, to fulfill, which is to be a good mother, I, you know, in 20 years from now, I want to be able to look at my two daughters and I want to be able to tell them, I did everything I could to advocate for you and your healthcare and in, and in your role in, in the workforce, mm-hmm. in the world. And I, I realized I would not be able to live with myself if I had not done that for my daughters. And I worry, I worry about my daughters in that way. You know, we're, we're, we're you know, living in a country here where women are paid less than men, yeah. where because of the COVID pandemic right now, we are losing uh, women in the workforce by the tens of thousands and millions. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a hard time to be a, a mother Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think that my son, I, I, having, you know, raised in a family of strong women, I think he'll understand. And I, I have to trust with, I have to trust them yeah. because I do feel that, uh, making these stories less taboo is an essential thing. If we want to go forward and advocate for our rights as women. I agree. Tell me as somebody sitting here in the UK, what it is like in the U S for women right now. Well, right now, I mean, I, I imagine that it's not that different from the UK, although I don't, you know, I, I've heard that you have a program that is paying people right now who are on lockdown. I, I don't know exactly what that is. Yes. Um, so yeah. Speak. yeah. We, yeah, we don't have that <laughs> <laughs> um, right now. In the, I mean, right now, currently in the United States, which and this has to do with reproductive health care. Um, yeah. You know, we are in a situation where we have our, our children at home and we're homeschooling our children. And the majority of people who are homeschooling their children right now are mothers. Um, and, uh, you know, we are right at, at a moment where we're looking at the ways in which we treat women's bodies um, medically and at work. Um, it's it's much harder for a woman who has children right now to be able to make an you know a, a reasonable income and um there's a you know there's a way in which it, it feels like uh i wor- i worried when i was writing left and wanted that people would not understand uh you know what it meant to live in a town where there was not reasonable access to health care and child care <laughs> And now we're at a moment where I feel like everyone is talking about it because we're all in it. So, you know, what happened to me is kind of a microcosm. If you take away reproductive, the issue of access to reproductive health care, though, I imagine at this moment, and it's much harder to obtain reproductive health care, um, that we're facing, you know, issues of equal pay and, uh, 
equal access to childcare and all of the resources that women need to be able to keep their families going. Correct me if I'm wrong, but this also feels like it has a socioeconomic element to it, which is it seems that actually if you are in those kind of urban, richer, kind of uh, maybe kind of more... um, I'm going to say more famous. I don't know if that's quite right, but more famous cities. If you're in New York, if you're in Los Angeles, that actually these things are easier to obtain than if you are in parts of the US which are poorer, which perhaps are overlooked. Is there, are we actually sort of penalizing women for living in poorer areas? Well, yes and no. I mean, I think cities offer more services Mm -hmm. and that. That is just the fact. Um, And, you know, places like New York and Los Angeles that you're referencing are in states that have fewer laws prohibiting abortion. So in the state of West Virginia, and it's not the only state in the country like this, um, there is only one reproductive health care clinic. There used to be many reproductive health care clinics. And as time has gone on, those the numbers have dwindled and the laws have been passed to make it harder to access them, you know, there's a 48-hour waiting period in many places. Um, doctors who uh, provide reproductive health care need to have admitting privileges into hospitals in some places. There are all sorts of ways in which we stop women from seeking reproductive health care. Um, and uh, that exists outside of blue states that, you know, is not unfortunately a rarity. And would be an issue for any woman of any, of any class. I mean, on the other hand, w- women who are... Uh, poorer are rely on these services in a way that women who have more money have access to travel and uh, find, you know, probably have more, more access to doctors who are doing, um, you know, doing uh, procedures like abortions uh, outside of a healthcare clinic. Um, So yeah, there is definitely um, a penalty against the poor, but it's not, you know, it wasn't designed that way. It was, it was designed as a penalty against all women. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, that was one of the things I thought about when I thought about whether or not I was going to write this book is that, um, you know, as a woman who is a professor at a university who has many, many years of education, I have 20 years of teaching experience, one would think that it would be easy for me to be able to access reproductive health care, but it in fact was not. I mean, I think there might, there are people listening that say, well, actually, if, um, here's the thing, right, you had, you know, maybe not the best paying job in the world, but you had a job, you had a supportive husband, you had other kids, so you had a family set up already to go and you now have your son and you love him dearly and actually it's all worked out. So surely this shows that uh, this kind of fear that women have, I'm, I'm paraphrasing other people, not my own views here, but anyway, this fear that women have about I've got a pregnancy and I don't, I don't want to go through with it so I should have the right to abortion. This is just actually, it's unrealistic and actually when you've got the baby it all works out fine in the end anyway. Mm-hmm. What would you say to them? I would say to them that there is a great deal of research that has been done. Um, a fantastic study called the Turnaway Study came out. Uh, it was published this year. Um, it's a decade-long study about the impact on women who have been denied access to reproductive health care. And you know the data the data suggests, and uh, it also it mirrors my experience um, that women who have been denied their choice are more likely to have anxiety, depression, their own health problems, um, hip problems, coronary problems. They're more likely to be poor. They're less likely to be employed. 
their children are more likely to be growing up in a home uh, that is uh, has some sort of abusive element to it. Um, and they're more likely to struggle in school and they're more likely in the end to be incarcerated. So I would say that my individual experience might seem on the surface like it worked out okay, but that was through a great deal of struggle on my part as well. Um, you know, the ramifications for the, the the ramifications for the, for, uh, for me were high. I, you know, what happened to me was that I was, you know, living in a body while I was pregnant with my son that I did not feel belonged to me. And it, it was hard to explain that to people. You know, I didn't just shake it off. I didn't, I didn't, I felt controlled in this way that, uh, really alarmed me. And, uh, I think at the end of the day, when it came down to needing to advocate for my son and his health care, part of my voice had been snatched. You know, it was hard to find it at that moment. I was mm. left depleted and feeling as if I did not know how to trust myself. And that might sound hysterical to some people, but in fact, you know, it, it's a logical conclusion when you tell somebody that they don't know what's best for them and what they want is so bad, you know, so... Uh, morally incorrect that they, you know, can't be trusted to be in proximity to it, which is what it felt like. Um, there will be consequences for them in terms of the, you know, their ability to feel the agency required to raise children. I, Christy, you put it really beautifully there, which is that point that I think so often gets missed, which is when we deny somebody access to any form of reproductive health care, we're denying them the right to choose what happens to their body. And I mean, those results that you talked about from that report are so so obvious when we think about it like that. It's so obvious when we think about when somebody doesn't have the right to choose how and why and where and when to place and care and look after and use their own body. Mm-hmm. It's we're taking away their freedom. It's uh, I mean it's so upsetting. Yeah. It's very upsetting. Uh, you know, and the other thing I just I want to say about mm. that is I the thing the person the people that I did imagine in that situation out were my daughters. I thought, yeah. oh my God, what if I'm here ten years from now and Josephine winds up, you know, accidentally pregnant um at 18, 19 years old? What am I going to do? What are we going to do? Is she going to have a baby? You know, it's just to to realize that my daughters would be um brought up in a place where they didn't have agency, didn't have choice. It was, it was terrifying to me. Finally, um, I want to ask you, the, your government is changing, hopefully, officially. Um, Uh We're moving hopefully away from the sort of the more conservative path that it's felt like the whole world has been going down the last few years and more onto a more liberal path. What would you like to see change about the way the U.S. talks about, handles, legislates for abortion? Well, first, I want to, you know, I want to say that, yes, thank God, that is true. Um, on the other hand, these laws have been in the making for a really long time. Yeah. They predate Trump. Mm-hmm. They predate this moment that we found ourselves in the last four or five years. It's not, th- this, this is not a new thing. This, yeah. this is, these, are, these are laws that have been pushed through over a long period of time to, to, to lead us where we are now. Um, so my ability to feel relief over a new administration here is, you know, of course, I feel it in many ways as a citizen. But as a woman, I, I'm not convinced that um, 
that this is going to be the big change that, you know, that everyone is hoping for. It's, you know, it's obviously actually not. States are in charge of their own um, laws and their access, and it's a state's rights issue. Um, And, you know, uh, Trump has uh, appointed a very conservative justice to the Supreme Court. I, in the future, what I hope for the country is that if we must see our laws chipped away uh, state by state this way, that um, as people who believe in supporting women, mothers, uh, no matter where you stand on the issue of abortion, that we have to live in a society where we provide women with adequate medical leave, parental, um, you know, leave around pregnancy time, uh, childcare, and an equal wage, because those are those are things that will make all the difference if women are unable to be able to choose to have a termination of pregnancy to begin with. Amazing. Krista, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your story. Krista Pravni is the author of Loved and Wanted, which is out now. You can see the kind of passion and depth of knowledge, really, that she has about the subject and how important it is for her and, quite frankly, for all women. You've been listening to Badass Women's Hour. If you like the show, then help more people find us. You can tag us or talk to us on social media using at Badass Women's Hour. Or you can be really lovely and leave us a review and a rating. Five stars, please. It helps boost us up the podcast rankings and allows other people to find us. We'll be back next week with more Badass Guests and in-depth chat. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.